Now we come to a text that speaks very much of what that song spoke of. In Hebrews chapter 7, we've been traveling through this chapter for a short time relative to other chapters. I think a lot of the groundwork was laid in previous chapters, so it's allowed for us to do that, but it's an important chapter. And what has this chapter been, been arguing? First of all, this chapter argues there's something significant about the figure of Melchizedek that we find in the Old Testament. And Melchizedek is barely there in the Old Testament. Just a couple of verses in Genesis, one reference in Psalm 110 verse 4. And so again, it might seem that he isn't important, and yet biblical theology says he's of the utmost importance because he points directly to Christ. And so we want to see that. And he's this Old Testament figure that points to the availing priesthood of Christ in the New Covenant. And so that clearly means that he supersedes the priesthood of Levi. As important as that priesthood is, he is greater because he comes from a greater priesthood. And we've gone through in this chapter establishing that, haven't we? Began, I think, our first uh, sermon in this chapter was on that very point, that as the author goes back and talks a little bit about the history that we would find in Genesis chapter 14, he says there's something important to note. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi's, and Levi himself testifies to it. To quickly go back into that, it was Abraham who received, if you will, a blessing from Melchizedek, and it was Abraham who tithed to Melchizedek. But of course, covenantally speaking, all his heirs for whom the covenant was made are in him. Right? Now, that's covenantal language. We've spoken about it often, but that's the point. Levi, as a descendant of Abraham, is in Abraham when Abraham does this act of showing deference to Melchizedek. So in other words, in Abraham, Melchizedek shows deference to, uh, Levi shows deference to Melchizedek. Again, he is saying that Melchizedek is of a greater priesthood. Melchizedek didn't offer tithes to Abraham in recognition of Levi. Levi in Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek. So that's an important point that we want to to realize. And also, author says there's many other things that we need to think about. We think about these few verses in the Old Testament that speak of Melchizedek and his priesthood, this order of priests that is after Melchizedek. And he says a couple of these points come from Psalm 110. Just this little reference, right, to the Messiah who will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And yet, he says from that we can gain a couple of things. First of all, that it is clear that the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater. Because our author says, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, then why wouldn't the Messiah come according to the order of Levi, if he's going to be a priest? But no, from the very beginning, it's clear there was a priesthood pictured greater than that of Levi. And we have to recognize that. So again, if the Messiah is going to come, he's not going to be of Levi, he's going to be of Melchizedek, a greater priesthood, which shows, again, evidence of it being a greater priesthood. Now, that also means there's a couple of other things that we can gain, the first of which is there is a need of a greater priesthood. Right? The Levitical priesthood does not fulfill all that God was planning to accomplish, that from the beginning there was the plan of a greater priesthood. It's not as if somehow the Levitical priesthood failed to avail what God desired it to avail, and so he said, well, I need to appoint a new priesthood. No. Melchizedek came before Levi. God was establishing from the very beginning that it was his long-standing, eternal plan that in this salvific work there would be a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek and that Christ would be a priest according to that order. 
So again, we see that. But something else our author wants us to see as he sets up for the next super important chapter, chapter 8, is that with the change of priesthood, there must also be a change of covenant or law. Now, you see that because the Old Testament priesthood is tied to the Old Covenant, isn't it? The instructions for it are there. They ministered in that Old Covenant. And in fact, this new covenant priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, cannot serve and function under the Old Covenant. Why? The Old Covenant appointed Levites as priests. But Jesus is not a Levite. And that's one of the things our author has gone into this chapter arguing. He was from Judah and therefore was ineligible to serve under the Old Testament priesthood. And therefore, it shows the necessity of a change, if you will, in covenant here. And so again, all these things are things he's trying to point to us that we could have inferred from the text all along had we been thinking properly. If we'd been thinking about the text properly from the beginning, we would have said, there's a priesthood greater than that of Levi. Testifies that in Genesis. And the Messiah will be of that priesthood, which means, again, it's greater than that of Levi. So again, these things are getting uh, told to us over and over again, but they're important for us to recognize. This is not some backup plan, some change. This is God's long-standing plan. So all of this means that this priesthood and this covenant will avail where the previous one didn't. And that's what he means when he says the old covenant was not able to perfect anything. The new covenant does because it has a perfect high priest, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, this covenant offers a better hope. These are the things we've been looking at. We've been given a surety, if you will, in Christ of a better hope. And so we see this in this text. Now, all of this is because of the completed work of our Melchizedekian king priest, whose priesthood is not authorized by simply the command of God. Now, that's what he says about the Levitical priesthood. It was commanded by God in the law. But he says there's something different, isn't there, about this priesthood. This priesthood was not commanded so much as promised. And not just promised, but promised and confirmed with an oath. He says the Levitical priesthood was not confirmed with an oath. And it wasn't really of promise, right? It was of law. But this priesthood was of promise and confirmed by an oath. And we spoke last Sunday about the significance of that. So all of these are points that he's making in this chapter to speak of the superior nature of this priesthood, of Christ as our high priest, and of the covenant that he is mediating on our behalf uh, for. And so again, all of this is the point. But there's a couple of little details that he leaves at the end of this chapter that we don't want to miss. And so we're going to look at them today. I want to read the text again, but we're going to start where we're starting today. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Now as we look at this we realize there's nothing really new here. We've covered 
all of this before, but the Holy Spirit in His wisdom has given it to us again. We need to look at it again. And so we're going to do that today. We're going to do it under these two points. First of all, a priesthood without end. It's one of the key points of this section, a priesthood without end. And second of all, a priesthood without weakness. So let's get into this this morning. All right, so we approach the text this morning. We want to first of all uh, continue to look at this point that we've been thinking about, about the, if you will, fundamental problem of the Levitical priesthood. The fundamental problem of the Levitical priesthood was it had a purpose for which it was well suited, but that purpose was not to deliver men from their sins, to save man. It wasn't the purpose of it. And so again, we want to recognize the Levitical priesthood has a weakness. Our author says that, doesn't he? In fact, in our last verse, he says here, for the law appoints high priests uh, as high priests, men who have weakness. So high priests have weakness, but again, he's told us over and over again, there is a weakness in the old covenant and a weakness in the priesthood that attains to it. And so he says this uh, in verse 18, for on the one hand, there is the annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. So again, we want to recognize this. This author is saying over and over again, God had a plan for a covenant which superseded the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, in fact, uh, was in service to that covenant. And there was a priesthood in that Old Covenant which itself was weak. And we need to look at why that is today. Because our author wants us to consider that one of the most glaring weaknesses of the Old Covenant priesthood was its mediation, its intercession. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, we want to recognize that that's not a small thing, is it? I mean... One of the chief uh, roles of a priest is to offer mediation and intercession. And so if its weakness is found there, that's a weakness at the heart of the Old Testament priesthood. And so again, uh, this text wants us to think about the Old Testament priesthood and how it was weak in this regard on several fronts. First of all, it was weak in that it wasn't permanently availing. A priest isn't constantly availing, constantly interceding, isn't constantly mediating on behalf of under the Old Covenant, of those who were under it. Now, where can we see examples of that? One we've pointed to again and again is Yom Kippur. Right, The day in which the high priest would go in on behalf of all of Israel and make a sacrifice for all the people happened how often? Once a year. On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the high priest could only enter for a time. For a time. And even then, as we've said, it's risky. You know, some of the the Jewish historians have written that they would often tie a rope around their waist in case they had a sinful thought or erred in some way uh, before the Ark of the Covenant and would drop dead. They had to have a way to drag the high priest out. He could only go in for a short time before the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And he could do it only once a year and only after going through all the proper steps, which we'll come back to in just a moment. But see... That's not the only point the author is making. The author is making a different point in our text today that also speaks to the, if you will, limited ability to mediate for the high priest in the Old Covenant. Because our text says today that there's another thing that would interrupt. Not just the fact that Yom Kippur was only one day a year, but even in his normal ministry as a high priest, it was interrupted by death. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. We were just talking about Roman history Wednesday night, weren't we? And in that, we were talking about how there wasn't an automatic successor in Rome during that third century. And so it wasn't clear if a Caesar died, who would follow him? And oftentimes, it was the one who killed him, who then said, now I declare myself Caesar. 
But again, we recognize in succession it's important for stability. But there still would be a time when a high priest would die, his ministry would conclude where there wasn't yet a replacement high priest. Now that might seem like a small thing, right? Within a day or so a new high priest would be appointed. But there was a day where there was no mediator for the people. There was a day where there was no intercessor for the people. And besides that, imagine for a moment the high priest being a great high priest. Not great in the way we speak of Jesus as the great high priest, but some high priests clearly were better than others, right? So imagine you're living under a great high priest. You say, oh, he's so much better than the last one. He's a a man of holiness. He's devoted to his task. He's a mediator on behalf of the people. He takes his task, his calling very seriously. Eventually he will die. And then maybe one will follow him who is not so apt, not uh, so concerned with his calling. We can see how even death interrupts this normal ministration under the Old Covenant. And the author says you might think of that as a small deal, but it points to something, doesn't it? It points to an imperfection in the priesthood, into a weakness in the priesthood, human weakness. Priests die, and a replacement has to be appointed. But for a moment, at least, these acts of mediation, intercession, will cease. And even then, the ultimate act of intercession or mediation was only taking place once a year. And so again, it points to the weakness, but he says something important here. That is not the case of the intercession of Christ. Our high priest is not like Levi. He's not like the Old Testament priests in that sense. There is no interruption. Why? Well, first of all, let's look at the Yom Kippur example. Does Christ only get to enter the presence of God once a year? No. He reigns forevermore at the right hand of the Father. He is right there in the presence of his Father, constantly making intercession. And so, first of all, that picture of Yom Kippur shows the difference, doesn't it, in in what Christ is able to do as intercessor and mediator and what the Old Testament provided. But also, the real point this text wants to make is, he isn't going to die. He died once for sin, he will die no more. He will reign forevermore as our king-priest. And that means there is no break in his intercession. There is no break in his mediation. And that's important for a couple of reasons. Because first of all, he's the perfect mediator and the perfect intercessor. There's never a lull in our mediation or intercession, is there? There's never a moment where we say, I just don't think Jesus is doing as good as he was a couple days ago. And I think Jesus is doing better today than he did last year. It's not going to happen. He perfectly mediates as our perfect mediator constantly and that's said to us in our text look at verse 24 it says he continues forever now that's important the priests were appointed of men men die christ is appointed if you will forever that's what it says in psalm 110:4, doesn't it that he will be priest forever according to the order of melchizedek he continues forever why because he can never die And that also means an important thing that we were just speaking about. Therefore, he has an unchangeable priesthood. If he doesn't die and he doesn't change, then his priesthood doesn't change. Unlike the Old Testament priesthood where there are reports, by the way, especially uh, as you get nearer the New Testament age, where there were wicked men in the role of high priest. That's not a concern. Christ forever 
rules and reigns. He is our high priest. His priesthood never changes because he never changes. When you think about this for a moment, these are attributes of Christ, attributes of God himself, that it is eternal and unchangeable. These are things that we need to recognize about his priesthood that the old covenant priesthood did not have. Well, why didn't have it? Because as he tells us, it was weak. It was weak. It had men appointed as high priests in their weakness because they were fallen men. But not so with our high priest. And so again, as we think about this, we need to realize the importance of this because verse 25 builds upon it. Look at verse 25. Therefore, the author says, therefore, because of what I've just said, that he is an unchangeable and eternal priesthood and that he is our perfect high priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Now, it's building on two reasons here, first of all, right? He's able to save completely, able to save utterly, completely, totally. Ponteles, this is this word. He's able to save without any flaw in that saving. Completely saved. And he's able to do this because he has made the perfect atonement and he perfectly mediates on our behalf forevermore. There is no change. When we think about Hebrews and we try to work through a chapter like chapter 6 and what exactly it's talking about, and we said here it's not talking about losing salvation. Where do we find evidence for that argument? Well, how about here? He doesn't save partially. He doesn't save incompletely. He doesn't save uh, with this indifference. He saves perfectly and completely. Those who come to God through Him, they are saved completely. That's not something you can have today and it's gone tomorrow because His position doesn't change. His mediation doesn't change. He doesn't change. And our salvation is not based on us. It's based on Him. I didn't go to Calvary's cross and die. He did. My death would have availed nothing, not even for myself. His death availed everything. His mediation avails everything. And so we need to recognize that it's verses like this that allow us to understand what this author is arguing. He's not arguing that you would lose something. He's arguing you'd give evidence you never had it, that you were never part of the people for whom he serves as high priest. And you're proving that because you're turning back to an earthly high priest. You think Levi is sufficient, and he's saying he isn't. Look at the weakness of Levi. Look at the weaknesses that you can find there. No. We need to recognize that if we're in Christ, we are in Him. In Him. We stand in His righteousness, His work, His completed task. And that's glorious news, this author is saying. It's glorious news because it means you're not standing in yourself. You're not standing in Adam. You're not hoping that that some high priest is a little more holy than the last one and may uh, somehow uh, avail a little bit more than the old one. No, none of that could deliver. None of that could save. It all pointed by shadow to the substance of Christ who is our perfect sacrifice and high priest. So as we consider this, I want us to go on to the next point because there's more good news. Because death is not the only weakness that the old covenant priesthood had to deal with. It's a major one. It's a major one, but the author goes on to say there were others. Look at this. He says in verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us. Why? Because he's holy and harmless, undefiled, separate for sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Now, we're going to go back to Yom Kippur or in every day to see this picture. 
He says that Christ is superior because unlike the old priests of the old covenant, the Levitical priesthood, he does not need daily to offer up sacrifices first for himself. Now what's he getting at there? He's getting at the fact that the Old Testament priesthood was embodied by men. Men. Yes, Christ, fully man, fully God, but these are of Adam. These are men in Adam. These are fallen sinners. And they have their own sin that must be accounted for before they can go and stand before God and minister on behalf of other sinners. So what does this mean? They have to offer sacrifices first for themselves. And not just one time, but over and over again. Think about for a moment all of the sacrifices offered. As sinners came to offer sacrifices for themselves, right? They would come and, and, and bring the animal for a sacrifice for their own sin, their own shortcomings, their own failings, their own rebellion against God. And yet the high priests were also offering sacrifices. And this was happening day after day, year after year, on and on. But our author says, is Christ having to waste time offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for us today? No. He offered a once and for all sacrifice in his own body, right? In himself. He offered himself as the sacrifice. He is the spotless lamb of God. All those Old Testament sacrifices again are pointing forward to Him as the perfect sacrifice. He did it Himself. And it wasn't something that temporarily availed or partially availed. It wasn't something to which anything needs to be added. And again, this is where you find many faultings in the world's religions, which argue that there must be something more than just what Christ did. We must also add to it our own works. No, it's not what this is saying. Christ offered the only sacrifice needed. He is sufficient. If we stand in Him, we stand in His perfect righteous standing before God. And that means that it perfectly avails. And we stand reconciled to a holy and righteous God. But again, this is a demonstration of the weakness in the system that the Old Testament priests had to again and again offer sacrifices for themselves. Well, well why is that? Because they were sinners. It's the very point he's making in verse 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. They're sinners. But Christ did not have to waste one minute dealing with his own sin because he had none. He went to offer a sacrifice for the sin of others, for his people's sin. And so, therefore, it was a once and for all sacrifice because his sacrifice perfectly avails. So all of this is demonstrating to us the weakness of the old covenant. These sacrifices that were offered over and over. Let's not miss what he says here in verse 26 about why that is the case. It says, For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, akakos, holy, that he himself is without guilt. And, but, but look at that list. Holy, undefiled, separate from sinners, and that he is also without fault or blame himself. This is why his sacrifice is perfect. You know, so many people who don't think about the argument of Scripture, A, because I don't think they're interested in what it has to say, but you see this in many uh, of these liberal churches today. Y'all have probably seen this nonsense over and over again where Jesus is accused of racism or sexism or a million other things that he then repents of and, and is made right or whatever because the Syrophoenician woman taught him a lesson or 
whatever nonsense like this. Well, if that is the case, if their preaching is true, then what that means is that the entire argument of Hebrews falls. Christ is not sufficient. He is not undefiled. He is not separate from sinners. He's just another sinner in Adam. And that is not the argument of Scripture. He is holy and undefiled. And because of that, because He is the spotless Lamb of God, He is able to go to Calvary's cross and give an atonement that no one else could. No one else could. A perfect and efficacious sacrifice. And then He's also able to serve as our perfect high priest. Why? Because He Himself is sinless. And He's able to serve in that way. We want to look at this also because it says one more thing. It says that He is fitting that he is fitting. And that's prepo, it's to be fit for something. Now this is a word that we don't use a lot now. We talk about this in Romans quite a bit. But this word fit, it's a great word. The Puritans loved it. It's a word that means it's suited for something. What we had need of, Christ is perfectly suited to meet. No one else. Levi wasn't. No high priest of the old covenant was. Only Christ is fit to meet our needs. And that's what he's saying here, that he is fit for this task. 26, for such a high priest, meaning Jesus, was fitting for us. What we had need of, he met the need. And he alone could meet the need. He was perfectly fit for what was needed. Only he could meet that need. And so my friends, I want us to think here for a moment as we get ready to leave chapter 7 and as we're closing here... I want us to think about what our author is trying to establish. Not really trying to establish, what he is establishing. He's establishing that there is a better covenant, that there is a better priesthood, that all this was needed, that all of this was the long-standing plan of God. It did not come as a plan B. It was God's plan from the beginning. That the old covenant priesthood, the old covenant in general, fit into that plan and had a purpose in that plan, but it was not the plan itself. Ultimately, Christ was going to come as the perfect high priest and perfect sacrifice, our perfect priest and king and prophet, the very thing we've been looking at the last three weeks in our catechism. He is the one for whom all these things prepared and all pointed to. And so again, we need to see this. Because he says in verse 28, The law appoints as high priest men who have weakness. We've just looked at that. But the word of oath... The word of oath, not the law, the word of oath, the promise and the oath that confirmed it, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now we need to go back, don't we, just really quick to talk about that. We talked about this back in chapter 2, I believe, and other places where it talks about the, the Son perfected or made perfect. And we say, wait a minute, how can one who is without sin, without fault, perfect be Perfected. This means made complete. In what way? To be our perfect priest and king. To be the God-man. Right? He took on flesh. Hebrews, as long established, I know you don't even want me to go back and reestablish this because it would take us another 20 minutes, but if you remember, we've made this argument over and over again, haven't we? That a high priest is appointed from among the people he represents. If Christ is going to, be, is going to represent us, he must be like us. He must be man. And therefore, he had to come and and be tempted and tried, yes, without sin. Right? He never faltered. 
but he's able to empathize with us as high priest because a high priest must be able to sympathize or must be able to understand the people that he represents. And so this is the way in which he was perfected. He came and he lived this earthly life and he was tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin. And he went to Calvary's cross and he completed the mission that was given to him by the Father, which he freely and willingly accepted. He went into the grave. He died for sin and he rose again reigning and ruling at the right hand of the Father on high, fulfilling this role. He has been perfected for this role forevermore, made complete for this role forevermore. It's not that there was any failing in Him. Uh, It's just that He had to go through this mission to be able to be the perfect mediator or high priest for us. And so again, the oath, the promise and the oath which confirms it points to Him, one who has no weakness, one who is perfected forever, one who will never die, one whose ministry will be unchangeable and everlasting. And our hope is tied to Him. That's the whole point, right? Our anchor is cast, if you will, behind the veil. It is secure behind the veil because it is secure in Him. And what our author is saying is, when you recognize that difference, there is no way to go back to Levi. If you understand that difference, there is no way to go back to the part when you have the full or the shadow when you have the substance. If you understand what Christ has accomplished, you realize that it is in Christ and in Christ alone that our hope is found. And so, my friends, thinking of that, we ought to give praise and thanksgiving to our King.